So the sermon today in the Incomparable series, we're going to be unpacking Matthew chapter uh, 17, and we're going to be seeing a situation where some of the disciples experience something that I call spiritual shock. Okay, spiritual shock. And to give you an example of what spiritual shock is, one of the most significant experiences of my life that led to me being right where I am here today was a Bible study that I took back when I did the Arise program over in America. And I'd met this lady, and she was interested in studying the Bible, and so I went over to her house, and when I got there, there was her and probably four or five of her friends and their kids. There was probably eight or nine people in this room studying the Bible, and they were just so um, earnest in, in wanting to know more about, about God. And we did the first Bible study, and then my, my friend who was there doing it with me did the second one, and then it got time to do the, the third Bible study, which was on salvation. Now, in the classes, we had learned how to um, do a, a, an appeal at the end to invite someone to accept Jesus as their saviour, but we'd always learned how to do it in more of a one-on-one kind of a setting. And, and so I was thinking, how do I do this with, a, with this many people? And so it's meaningful for all of them, and, and, I, was, and I was pretty nervous. I thought, maybe I just, we'll just skip the appeal, but I thought, I can't do that. I have to just pray about it and, and see where God leads in this. And I found a verse that I was going to use as a, a launching verse into asking them if they would like to invite Jesus into their hearts. And I remember I got to the place, we'd gone through the Bible study, they were really engaged, and I was about to read that verse when suddenly a phone went off, which tends to be how it happens sometimes. The, Satan always tries to distract the moment just when it's, when it's the, the best time for someone to make a decision for Jesus. And then another phone went off, and then the father in that family just got up and walked out of the room. And I was thinking, what is going on here? I was, here I was about to make this really earnest appeal and all these people have just been distracted or they've left and I'm just, tell me on mine, I'm just praying, Lord, please bring this back, bring this back to a place where we can ask, the, invite them to accept Jesus in, into their heart as their saviour. And so pretty soon they sort of found their way back and, and I thought, okay, let's try this again. And I, and I opened up the, the Bible and I said, turn to this verse I got one of the ladies to read it, and the moment she started reading this verse, she made this, this noise, it was like a, <laughs> kind of a like, noise, and then she just started crying, and I was just like, thinking, whoa, this suddenly got pretty intense, and she starts crying, she's reading through this verse, and tears are streaming down her face, and then someone else in the room starts crying, and then someone else starts crying, and pretty soon everyone in the room is, is, is just tears are flowing, and my friend who was with me as well, he's just bawling his eyes out as well. And, and at the end, I asked them if they'd like to invite Jesus into the heart and to raise their hand, and they all raised their hand, and it was just this, this incredible sense of, of just being aware that God was at work in that space. And I remember I walked out of that room, and we went down and, and parked down near the church, and, we'll, and, I, and I got up and I walked out to the, the road that was by the church in the dark, and I was just in what I describe as spiritual shock. The feeling that God has just shown up in such a powerful way that I'm, I can't even really quite comprehend what just, just happened. And I remember telling God in that moment that I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, but whatever it is, I want it to be involved. I want to be involved with doing more of this. And so spiritual shock is something that, for me, that experience was something that really strengthened my faith. I'd been going through a sort of a uh, a period of sort of doubting, uh, a bit before that as well, and this was a real time where God was real to me, and, 
and I, had, I just wanted to be involved more in God, and, and I wanted to have more of whatever that thing was that I just experienced, where God showed up, and I could not deny that His presence was there with us. In Matthew chapter 17, we're going to find another situation of spiritual shock, although this makes mine look pretty insignificant, probably, in comparison to just the, the intensity of the situation that is, that is going on here. And I'm going to read right through the whole, the whole story, up to verse 9, and then we'll unpack it. But first, let's have a, a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I, just, I, I pray that, that just as I was aware of your presence back in that time I was doing that Bible study, I pray that each one of us here would be aware of your presence right now. May your Holy Spirit be here. May it not be myself teaching, teaching here, Lord, but may you be guiding myself, and may you be guiding each and every listener so that we can discern your voice in the message today. We pray that you'll not only enable us to discern your voice and your challenge to our hearts today, but help, help us also to have the knowledge on how to put this into practice and the willingness and the courage to do so. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 17, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What an experience of spiritual shock. The first thing that I want you to know about this is the word transfigured. It says Jesus was transfigured before them. And the, the word that's, that's translating is the Greek word metamorpho. Okay? And does that sound similar to any other word you know? Metamorphosis which simply means, as does very much this word, to change in a manner visible to others, to be transfigured or to be transformed. And you think of a, of a caterpillar that, that, um, that goes into the cocoon, and next thing, it's, it's completely transfigured to be this, 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 have this new degree of glory as this butterfly, and, this, and, this, and, it's, and it's transformed. Well, here we see Jesus undergoing a transfiguration or a transformation. And the things that, that happen are this. Firstly, it says that his face shone like the sun. Now, I got up on my, down at my, out in my house and looked over near where the water is, and I watched the sunrise this morning, and there was whales out there jumping as well. And the thing when you're watching a sunrise is when it actually, the sun actually comes up over the horizon, it's pretty hard to look at it, isn't it? And if you do, then everything else you look at just has all these little circles and dots wherever you're looking. And so here it says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. I wonder what sort of intensity that was and whether the disciples just, just covered their faces to hide themselves from this intensity. It also says that their, their clothes became white as light. Now, in, with this story, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
And each of the accounts has a few different um, details, and some of those we're going to draw on as we go through this, this message today. And in Mark chapter 9, 3, when it's talking about these white clothes, it's, it says, And his garments were radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What did that look like? Face like the sun, this supernaturally white clothing. Then, to, in addition to this, the disciples, they look up and they see Moses and Elijah standing next to Jesus. Now, for those who are familiar with the stories of Moses and Elijah, these were not people that were currently alive at this time. These people lived hundreds of years before this time. And yet, there's, they are standing next to Jesus. This is a, this is a pretty intense moment. Then, there's a, a cloud of light that just sort of des- descends upon them. I just imagine it just enveloping them. And there's this supernatural heavenly voice that speaks out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And in verse 6, it says, it describes the spiritual shock that they had as a result. It says, when, they, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Just what, I love just imagining this scene. It's just so glorious, so bright, so incredible that all they can do is just fall on their face and hide and just, just, I just imagine the shaking with utter fear. And the next thing they experience is the gentle touch of Jesus on their shoulder. And I love this because throughout the scriptures, we, we find that Jesus, although he is presented as being exceedingly powerful, he's also exceedingly gentle. And he touches them gently and he says, do not be afraid. And they look up and it's just Jesus, just Jesus left. This story is, is, is glorious, it's amazing, but it's also very confusing. And there's layers of complexity and layers of just difficulty in understanding what, this, what is happening here. And when I sat down to start preparing this sermon, I looked and I thought, oh no, this is going to be a tough one because there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on in this text. And as we're going to find when we go, th- go th- unpack this now, th- this, is, this story is drawing from many other stories in Scripture and it's, and it's connecting with many other themes and ideas uh, which we're going to unpack. So, what we are especially going to look at is the transfiguration, why? Why did Jesus take his disciples up on this mountain this day? Why did, why did this happen? Why were Moses and Elijah there? Why, were they, why was Jesus revealed in his glory? What impact did this have upon the disciples, and what impact did this have upon Jesus? And the first thing I want to look at is the transfiguration happened for encouragement. For encouragement. Now, as you read through this passage, you get this sense that, that the crucifixion is really in the forefront of Jesus' mind. Especially if you jump just back in chapter 16, in verse 21, we really see this, this being shown. It says in chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So when Jesus died on the cross, that didn't take him by surprise. In fact, he was completely aware all of that was going to take place. And here, this is really in the forefront of his thinking. And in response to that, when he shares that in verse 22, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, 
get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, hindrance to me, for you are, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So here Jesus is being really, in many ways, very aware and possibly even overwhelmed by the prospects of his crucifixion coming up down the track. And the disciples are just completely oblivious to what's really going on. They just don't get it. And in addition to this, I think Jesus, it says here, he's going to be, his words were, um, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, these were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the, the Jewish the leaders, the priests, the scribes. These are the ones that were supposed to prepare the world for Jesus' coming. And Jesus is, is coming now, and Jesus knows well and truly that they're not going to prepare the world, but rather they are going, going to be the ones who help initiate the crucifixion event itself. So Jesus here has every reason to be overwhelmed and burdened by the prospects that lie in front. Now, Jesus then, he gets Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up onto a mountain. Now, those who are uh, students of the Bible here, can you think of any other story in Scripture where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and takes them to a mountain? Can you think of any stories? In the lead-up to the crucifixion event, Jesus went with, with all of his disciples, and he went to the Mount of Olives. And on the edge of the Mount of Olives, we see Gethsemane. And when he got there, he was, in any place, this is where Jesus was incredibly burdened with the, with the whole idea of the cross. And if we read it from the Mark account, it says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And began to be very distressed and troubled. Now we're jumping to the Luke account here, because we're going to bring out a few of these points. And he withdrew from them, them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Does this sound like Jesus is, is at peace at this stage with his, what's com coming before him? Okay, he, we see he's willing, he's willing to follow God, but he's He's searching, is there any other way? Is there any other way that I can save the world without going to the cross? But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Here we see Jesus, his humanity shrinking away from the, 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 what's going to, the suffering that is to come, and he's praying to God for some sort of other option or at least strengthening and encouragement. He goes on to say, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them also praying. He found them sleeping. So note here, Jesus is in the, the peak of his, of his agony here. He's, he's so stressed by the situation and... and and compounding this is the whole sins of the world being put upon Jesus. His sweat is like drops of blood falling on the ground. And he comes to his disciples and they are oblivious and they are sleeping. Now in the midst of this agony, we find a heavenly messenger that's sent to strengthen and to encourage Jesus. 
And it says in the beginning of that, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Now, we often think of Jesus as being the guy that has it all together, don't we? He, when the demoniac was there, everyone else ran away, but Jesus stood his ground, and he, was, he, just, he didn't flinch, he was not, had no fear, he always seemed to be one step ahead of everyone else, he always seemed to know what needs to be done, but here we find Jesus himself, God himself, needing to be strengthened, and the angel comes there, and encourages him and strengthens him for the task that lies ahead. So let's go back now to the transfiguration, and we're going to look at it from, this time, the Luke account of the transfiguration, and we're going to see if we can find any parallels between these two stories. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James, okay, there's the same three people, and went up onto a mountain to pray. Okay, here we see that the transfiguration, when Jesus went there, there was a purpose with it, okay? And the purpose was prayer, just like when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, The appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. So here we see Jesus in the forefront of his mind is the crucifixion event. He gets these three disciples. He goes up onto this mountain to pray. And in the midst of that, what are the other disciples doing? Again, they're sleeping. And in the midst of this, Jesus is visited by two messengers from heaven. This time it's not an angel, but it's Moses and Elijah. And they are there talking with Jesus. And if we can make those, connect those parallels, it seems reasonable to, to, to assume here that Moses and Elijah are here comforting or strengthening or at least encouraging Jesus for the path that lies ahead of him. Now, it's very interesting, the conversation that they spoke about. It says in the middle of here, in, if it's in your Bibles, it's in verse 31. It says, they spoke about his departure. Now, I want to do another little word study for you here. The word departure is the Greek word, I think I've got it up there on the screen, the Greek word exodos. Okay? Now, what word does that remind you of? Exodus. And throughout Scripture, the word exodus, and especially this Greek word, in the times when it's used, often is used to refer to the event of the great exodus out of Egypt, where Moses went into Egypt and, and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. They got all the Israelites, they gathered them together, they went out, they went through the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness, and then entered the promised land. But the word doesn't just, Exodus doesn't just refer to that event, but the Greek word as well, so number one meaning is movement from one geographical area to another, meaning number one, that's what we just talked about. Number two is a departure from among the living. It was a euphemism for death. So we're departing from this life to, to death. And here we see this interesting little word play happening. In this one word, exodos, we, 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 can, we can extract from this some of the content of which Elijah and Moses were discussing with Jesus there on that mountain. And surely this was Jesus' departure. They spoke of Jesus' departure from this life. They spoke to him about, and they discussed with him the cross event that was coming up. But if Moses is there speaking about the exodus, 
what other event is coming into their minds. It's the great deliverance from, from Egypt, where the, the Israelites were, were, were taken out of there by the power of God and brought to the promised land. And so here we see these Moses and Elijah were there both strengthening Jesus because the cross was before him, but that would bring about such a great redemption that through the cross, humanity will experience a far greater exodus. And instead of going to the promised land in Canaan, we'll be taken to the heavenly promised land and the new earth. Now, this is exactly what we find in the book Desire of Ages as well. Um, In page 425, it says, These men, chosen above every angel around the throne, had come to commune with Jesus concerning the scenes of his suffering, and to comfort him with the assurance of the sympathy of heaven. The hope of the world, the salvation of every human being, was the burden of their interview. Now, I like how it says there that these men were chosen above every angel around the throne. Now, God has many different ways to do something. To any problem that we have, God has thousands of solutions to meet that problem. And here, God the Father looks down upon God the Son, and, and Jesus there is, is in need of, 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 of a, someone who can give him sympathy and encouragement. And he looks around at all the angels. You imagine Gabriel there and, and the other mighty angels in heaven. And Moses and Elijah are chosen to be the ones best qualified to sympathize and to encourage Jesus. And it makes me ask the question, why did Jesus, why did the Father, sorry, choose Moses and Elijah? It makes me think of a verse we find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. This is not speaking about Moses and Elijah, but it's speaking about Jesus, who's our high priest. And it speaks about why Jesus is uniquely qualified to be, to represent us and to be our high priest in heaven. And it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is Jesus the best high priest we could ever have? Because Jesus has experienced everything that we could go through. Jesus has experienced everything that we could face, every challenge, every obstacle that, we can, we can, um, that can come before us. Temptation, Jesus has been there. Rejection, Jesus has been there. Betrayal, abuse, sufferings, whatever you're suffering with, Jesus understands what you're going through, not just in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way. And Jesus looks down and he sympathizes with your heart, your struggles, he sympathizes with your temptations, and he comes to you with gentleness and love to help you in your time of need. Jesus understands. This also shows us that personal experience of hardship uniquely, uniquely qualifies you to encourage others going through the same things as well. And we think of all the angels around, the, around the, the throne that God was going to choose to come and encourage and to strengthen um, Jesus in this moment. And Moses and Elijah are chosen because Moses and Elijah too have walked this earth. They've suffered with temptation. They've suffered with hardships. And if we compare their lives, we see 
many, many parallels between Elijah, between Moses, and with Jesus. And let me give you a few examples. Moses and Elijah were both given the mission of saving a nation. Moses, his mission was to go to Pharaoh and to save the Israelites out of their slavery. Elijah, this is further down in the story, Elijah is given the task of going and going to the Israelites who have gone in, that have um, rebelled against God, that are deep in idolatry, and to encourage them to turn back to the living God and to bring them back into a place of salvation. So, so both of them can relate to Jesus in that sense. And Jesus, him, is not just a nation, but it's the world that he's there to save. Number two, both of these people endured countless sufferings. You think of all the hardships of Moses going through the wilderness with these grumbling, complaining um, Israelites. And you think of Elijah when he's there hiding away as a fugitive in the wilderness in his situation, being fed by ravens because there's no other food in the land. These people endured countless sufferings as well. And they experienced rejection from the very people they were trying to save. Moses, in Numbers 14 verse uh, two to four, he had taken the Israelites 40 years through the wilderness. He'd been this incredibly strong leader, and he's at the border to the promised land. And the report comes back about what the promised land is like, and what do the people do? It says, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. <clears throat> the whole congregation said to them, "Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Oh, would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword?" Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Will, will it, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Did they have a leader? They did. But they didn't want Moses anymore. And then it gets so bad that they say, then all the congregation, notice the emphasis on all the congregation, said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Here Moses has dedicated his life. He's dedicated the last 40 years to bringing salvation to these people who are stuck in slavery in Egypt to the promised land and it's just about to be there and these people turn on him and they want to stone him. And But by the glory of God showing up and bringing a supernatural stop to this situation, they would have been destroyed in this. And so I imagine Moses and Elijah there with Jesus on on the, on the mountain of transfiguration, talking about his, his, his departure from this world on the, on the cross, but talking also and encouraging them, keep going, Jesus. It's going to be worth it. You're going to bring a greater exodus to the whole of this world. And the Desire of Ages says, Now heaven had sent his messengers to Jesus, not angels, but men who had endured suffering and sorrow, and who could sympathize with the Savior in the trial of his earthly, earthly life. So we're going to take a little pause here what do we, and look at what do we learn from, from the story of the transfiguration so far. Firstly, we learn that God can bring good things out of our suffering. And this has been a theme that I think has really been, that we've, we've touched on a lot over the last few, um, few months. We, we talked about uh, Paul and his thorn in the flesh, and how God had allowed him to endure that because that was to keep him from becoming conceited, keep him from becoming prideful and to trust more heavily in God. We talked about Paul in the prison cell. And we talked about how in the prison cell, 
chained for two years to these soldiers being rotated, what an evangelistic opportunity. And even people of the household of Caesar came to know about the, the love and the, and the salvation of Jesus because Paul was there in prison achieving what he could not do if he was not in prison. God brings good things out of suffering. We talked about John the Baptist and he had his head chopped off. It seemed a mystery why God would allow such a thing to happen. But throughout the millennia, people who have faced um, death as a result and, and martyrdom as a result of, of faithfully following God have looked at this story as a source of encouragement that God has not abandoned them and encouraged them to go all the way with Jesus. And here again, we see that God can bring good things out of our suffering. And Moses and Elijah, I can't imagine that they ever would have thought as they were dealing with these grumbling Israelites, these rebellious Israelites, that someday God would use those experiences for them to be in a position where they could actually encourage God himself. God can bring good things out of our suffering. It also shows us that personal experience of hardships uniquely qualifies you and me to encourage others going through the same things. And so if you have had to deal with difficult temptations and you have had to deal with great losses and, and challenges in your life, even though those, those things are so difficult, maybe God has given you a, a unique opportunity to be able to minister to some people in ways that you otherwise just would not be able to do it. And thirdly, if Jesus needed encouragement, then so do we. If God himself, who had every resource at his disposal, who knew all things, who could do all things, needed sympathy, a listening ear and needed a word of encouragement, then we all do as well. And the challenge is to be just like Moses and just like Elijah to the people around us and the people in our community. Let's be that listening ear. Let's be that person who can bring a word of encouragement to people who are going through challenges and trials. The transfiguration happened for the encouragement of Jesus. Number two, and this is our second major point, there's only two points here. The transfiguration happened for faith. I want to take you back to the, a promise that was given in the very end of chapter 16. So go, go back, so transfiguration's in chapter 17, Jump back a few verses to chapter 16, and we're going to read from verse 26. And here we see a promise that when you read it, you're probably going to think, how on earth has that ever been fulfilled? That promise clearly has not happened. But we're going to show, that, show you that it actually has. So, verse 26 to 28. So here Jesus is going to be talking about the second coming. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul... Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So here, Jesus is talking about that we need to put, take God seriously, put him first, because one day Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to come with all the glory of the Father, with all the angels of heaven. And, it's going to be this, and he describes this glorious scene of the second coming. But after that, he says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now question, have those, all those disciples who were there listening to Jesus died? Yes. 
has Jesus come back yet? No, there's been thousands of years in between. How is it possible that some of those people could not taste death until they see Jesus coming in his kingdom? Well, the solution is chapter 17. And we're going to show you, I'm going to show you how this transfiguration event is in reality a fulfillment of this promise that Jesus gave to his disciples um, in chapter 16. Okay, let's read verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain. Now, it's very precise here the time. If you notice, it says, after six days. Why here is Matthew being so precise when previously he's just said, and then, and then, or after this, here there's this precision attached to the timing, and the reason is because Matthew is making a deliberate textual link between this story and the promise given in the verses before that. So, there's a promise, there'll be some here that will not die until they see the kingdom, Jesus coming in his kingdom. After six days, bam, Jesus took James and John, Peter, James and John, up into the mountain. The second thing is, Jesus, when he went up on the transfiguration, he didn't take every disciple, but he limited it to three disciples, Peter, James and John. And in the promise, Jesus didn't say, all of you will see my coming, all of you will not taste death before you see my coming, but he said, some of you will not taste death before you see my coming in my kingdom. So here we see these links start to, start to join, join together here. Um, now, there's another hint that this is a fulfillment of, of the promise given, and that is the fact that Jesus there stands next to Moses and Elijah. What is the significance of this? Firstly, as Adventists, as Bible-believing Christians, we should be possibly a little bit surprised to see people who died hundreds of years ago once again alive. We find in verses, and to give you just the briefest Bible study on what happens when you die, Jesus, when he went to Lazarus, Lazarus had, had, had just passed away, and Jesus, speaking of Lazarus, said these words. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Notice those words, asleep. But I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. He goes on to say, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant literal sleep. So then he told them plainly, Jesus... I mean, Lazarus is dead. Communicated here, Jesus is saying that death is actually like a sleep. Well, what is that experience like? In Ecclesiastes 9, 5, 5 and 6, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and either, even their name is forgotten. The, the, the dead are not in heaven learning these incredible new things, but rather they know no thing, as it says there. In Psalms 115, it says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Now, when you think of heaven, surely you think of praise going on and worship around the throne of God. But here the dead do not praise God, and nor do they go up. It says they go down, not into a place of noise, but in a place of silence. Here we see the biblical teaching that when you die, it's a sleep-like state where you have a, a, there's, you, you don't have an awareness. There's no thinking. It's, it's a... It's a lack of consciousness in your sleep. So what about all the promises about eternal life and of salvation? 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel. Note, the voice of the archangel is going to become significant shortly. And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise 
first. So when Jesus comes back at the second coming, remember this promise was concerning the second coming, it says that the archangel, who is the Lord himself, will descend, and when the archangel shouts and the trumpet blows, the dead in Christ will raise from the, gr- from the grave. In addition, after that, we who are still alive and are left will not miss out, but be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That is the Christian hope that we have. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. We're going to tie these things together in, in a second. Here we say, speaking of the same thing, speaking of these two different groups, the dead in Christ and those who are alive when Jesus returns, it says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be what? Changed. Our resurrected body is not going to be the same as our current body. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is the second coming, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Here again, we see the distinction of two groups of people. There is, when Jesus comes back, there will be the dead in Christ, and there will be the believers who are not yet dead yet, and then there will also be the wicked in Christ, or the, not the wicked in Christ, the wicked dead and the wicked alive afterwards. So, and all of both of these groups, the dead in Christ, plus those believers who are still alive, the resurrected people will come with new glorified bodies, and we who, are, who are, remain, who have not yet passed away, will be given brand new glorified <coughs> bodies as well. Keep these thoughts in your mind. Elijah and Moses... Why weren't they sleeping in the grave? Now, it's true that for the very vast majority of us, when we die, we'll sleep until the the general resurrection, the great resurrection at the second coming. But there are a couple of exceptions to the rule. And Moses and Elijah are two of those exceptions. Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2, 11, says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, two chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, that's Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Here, at the end of Elijah's life, he didn't die, but in a supernatural event, this this chariot of fire came down and swooped Elijah up and took him to heaven. Moses also had a mysterious death. At the end of his life, it says, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land. So those who remember the story, Moses had sinned against God during his life, and as a result, God said, you can't enter into the promised land, but God had a secret for him. He was going to enter into the real promised land, and that is heaven itself. And it goes on to say, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Well, if someone buried him, surely someone knows where his grave is. Unless the person who buried him was the only person that was with him at the time, which was God himself, who buried Moses there upon Mount Nebo. So we see this miraculous surroundings about the death of Moses. Jump forward to the book of Jude, Jude chapter 9. It says, but even the archangel Michael. Now, what happens at the voice of the archangel? The dead in Christ are raised. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke here. Here we see this little interesting insight into what was happening behind the scenes 
when Moses died and said, the archangel Michael, who, who if he is the one who raises the dead, is also Jesus Christ himself, is disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. And then on the transfiguration, we see Moses is alive. Piece all this together, we see that Moses, just like Elijah, is one of those few little exceptions to the rule who, who, who got to go after his death to the promised land in heaven itself. And so we see, um, we see Jesus there glorified with next to him Moses and Elijah. And we're almost going to piece this together. Luke chapter 9, verse 29, verse 31, it says, And as he was praying, so this is the Luke version of the transfiguration, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in what? In glory. Did they have their usual earthly, normal bodies like you and me, or did they have a resurrected, glorified body like we will have in the future? When we piece all these things together, what, what emerges from this scene is this mini picture of the second coming. It is, it is the second coming and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom presented to Peter, James, and John in miniature. At the second coming, you'll see Jesus coming in glory, and then there will be the dead raised in glory, and you'll see the living transformed in glory. And here we see upon the cross, we see a little representation of that. Jesus in glory, we see Moses representing those who have died, who will be raised to life. We have Elijah representing those who will go straight to heaven and all together. It is an encouragement to Jesus that this is going to be the kingdom that you are going to establish. And it's also for the establishment of the faith of Peter, James, and John. Here we see the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus that some here will not taste death before they see my kingdom coming. Now, Ellen White says the same thing when you read through the Desire of Ages. It says, the Savior's promise to the disciples was now fulfilled. Upon the mount, the future kingdom of glory was represented in miniature. Christ the King, Moses, a representative of the risen saints, and Elijah of the translated ones. I love that. The future glory of the kingdom represented in miniature. Now, if you had an experience like this, an experience of spiritual shock like this, how would that impact your life? Do you think that the next day you would live as if God might exist somewhere off into the distance? Or would this experience bring about a transformation in your life that would result in, in a life of service and a life of faith looking forward to the the full realization of God's glory in, 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 at the second coming. Well, we see in the life of Peter a transformation. Now, Peter, was, remember, he was sleeping through half of this, so he probably didn't get all of what God does, intended for him to get from this moment. But connected with this and the cross event and the, and the resurrection, we see that Peter developed this incredible faith in God. And... Excuse me, my my big point before I'm, I'm getting to it there. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Let's go to, across to there. And here we see Peter's own understanding of what took place upon the transfiguration. Second Peter uh, chapter 1. 
Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 16, and these will be the last few verses that we unpack, and then we'll wrap things up. Verse 16, it says, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In other words, guys, we've been going around preaching about the coming of Jesus and the establishment of His kingdom, but we're not just making these stuff up because we have been eyewitnesses of the coming of Jesus. How was Peter an eyewitness of the coming of Jesus? Well, he didn't see it in its full, but he saw it in miniature on, on the mountain there. And he goes on to make that connection in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, those of you who are familiar with the, the last stages of Peter's life, Peter ended his life in, in Rome, and when he got there, it came time for his, depart, his own departure from this life. And it came clear that he was going to suffer a martyr's death, very similar to what Jesus died as well, the death of crucifixion. But Peter, thinking back to the times when he denied his Lord back in, in, in when he was crucified, he didn't want to, he didn't think he was worthy of such an honor to die the same sort of death that Jesus did. And in the last moments, he request, requested of the guards that he might be crucified upside down and saying that I am unworthy, but what a privilege to die and to suffer for Jesus Christ. What an incredible faith that Peter came to have. And without doubt, the situation on the mountain was a piece of the puzzle that led him to have such an incredible faith. But have we had the transfiguration experience upon the mountain? Do we have access to that same sort of life-transforming, faith-giving power of God? The next thing that Peter says in this passage, he says, so he just talked about, he was eyewitness of the, of the majesty of God, he talks about the transfiguration, verse 19, he says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, speaking of the scriptures, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart." Here we have Peter saying that we, you might not, and, and the people he's writing to, you might not have had the experience on the mountain of transfiguration, but you have the Scriptures. And just like Jesus was shining like a lamp in a dark place upon that mountain, the Scriptures are to be, to us, like a lamp shining in this, this dark world until the day dawns when Jesus comes back and we see Jesus not just, as a, not just in the Scriptures, but we see him in his in fullness. And also it says, when we, when we are focusing on the scriptures and we are focusing on this lamp in a dark place, it talks about the morning star rising in our hearts. And that morning star, if you read through Revelation, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Through the scriptures, we too can experience Jesus and have a transfiguration-like faith-affirming experience like Peter, James, and John. It says the Bible makes 
the experience of the transfiguration available to everyone. To have a faith like Peter, a faith that can say, crucify me upside down because I am unworthy. That faith is not limited to the few people that saw Jesus face to face, but is it available to each one of us. And we experience that kind of faith when we connect with Jesus through the Scriptures. And we spend that time in daily Bible study and prayer, feasting upon His glory. Final point, and then I'll let you go home. The thing I love about this story of the Transfiguration is there's so many stories that that find their connection and their parallel in this story. We've looked at three of them already. Well, we didn't look at the first one, but you can see it as well. Jesus' baptism, voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. Do we see that on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yes. Gethsemane, do we see Gethsemane on the Mount of Transfiguration? So many parallels, we want to pack that today. Do we see the second coming of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yes. But there's another event that connects so strongly with this as well, and that is the crucifixion. And I'm not going to unpack this in detail, but I'm going to let a quote that I found from a person by, called N.T. Wright in Matthew for Everyone unpack this link. It says, In fact, the scene at the Transfiguration, as it's normally called, offers a strange parallel and contrast to the crucifixion. If you're going to meditate on the one, you might, as, might like to hold the other in your mind as well as a sort of backdrop. It goes on to say, Here on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white. There they have been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes. There he is flanked by two brigands representing um, the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful it is all here. There he is hiding in shame after denying, even knowing he even knows Jesus. Here a voice from God himself declares that this is the wonderful son. There a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was the son. But the greatest similarity between the two is that both reveal Christ's glory. On the mountain, we see God's glory and power. We see his, his splendor. We see the radiance shining from Jesus. But on the cross, we see an even greater revelation of God's glory. Not the glory of, of splendor, but the glory of love and his love for you and me. That he would die upon the cross with a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left so that you can have the hope of eternal life. Take-home lessons. Number one, your hardships uniquely qualify you to be a source of encouragement for others. Number two, Jesus understands temptations, rejections, sufferings, hardships, whatever you're going through, Jesus actually understands, not just intellectually, but he understands experientially. Number three, if Jesus needed encouragement, then we need encouragement too, and we need to be that encouragement to one another. Number four, the Bible makes the transfiguration experience available to each one of us. And if we want a faith like Peter, we need to have a devotion like Peter, and we need to be beholding the glory of God in the Scriptures. And finally, the same glory revealed in Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration 
was revealed in Jesus upon the cross. And we have a Savior who loves us infinitely. And the most wonderful thing that you can ever come to know about Jesus is that He would stretch out His hands for you so that you can live a life of eternity with Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this story. Wow, it just boggles our mind to see so much depth in a few verses. It just, for me, it just reassures me of, of the supernatural origins of Scripture and the supernatural origins of the plan of salvation. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be an encouraging church. Um, we think of, um, of Barnabas, the man who was called son of encouragement, Lord. May we be sons and daughters of encouragement. Lord, may we feast upon your glory so that, like Moses, when he descended from Mount Sinai after seeing your presence, that we go into this world and we reflect the glory of God to others, Lord. And Lord, may we just understand that you are a God of love. And as we go into this week, we just pray that you will help us to fix our eyes upon you, renew our faith, stir up within us a a, a faith that conquers all challenges, Lord, and help us to be the people that you desire us to be, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. Forgive us of what we've done wrong, and Lord, we look forward to the day when the trumpet will sound, when there'll be the voice of the archangel, the shout of, of Jesus himself descending in the clouds, and we will be transformed in glory and spend eternity with you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.